Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. Okay, no judgment here. Who already has the Christmas tree um, out and up? Again, okay. Fairly good number of you all have done this. Um, we are starting um, Advent, and, and, and you might note that Advent is really not about the preparation um, of Christmas. It's about uh, the preparation um, of Jesus' second coming. Now, um, obviously, um, you know, going around and you know, yelling, you know, like, you brood of vipers, like we'll hear from John the Baptist at people, um, is not as endearing as Merry Christmas. Um, but, but this season is really for us to think about the second coming. And I know this is like really weird for Episcopalians to ever talk about the second coming. And yet it is in our liturgy each and every week in which we pray Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We talk about it in the creeds when we profess our faith and our hope that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. It is there throughout our beliefs and yet we're sort of uncomfortable talking about it. Maybe we've heard some theological gibberish from other Christians about the second coming that just makes us feel icky when we hear about it. Or maybe a well-meaning neighbor gave you the left behind books. (laughs) If you really wanted to scare a child in the evangelical world in the 80s and 90s, all you had to do was talk about the rapture. One person I talked to, um, he had came home from um, school, he was doing homework, fell asleep, Um, his parents had gone out to go grocery shopping or something, and he wakes up and no one is in the house, and his first notion is, I have been left behind and immediately going through all the sins that he had committed that caused him as a 14-year-old to be left behind. The rapture and these ideas that we have so um, um, embraced in Christian culture in America are modern add-ons that the early Christians would have looked at and said, what are you smoking? The word that gets used to explain rapture is a word that talks about how when a king would enter into a city, the people would go out and welcome the king into the town, the village, the city, as a sign of respect and love and honor. And we have taken this image that Paul uses to talk about Christ coming into our lives as a means of fear and control. While back, Jimmy Cliff, a Jamaican musician, was on with Stephen Colbert to publicize his new album, Existence. And he shares how he had studied all the religions And he has decided that he has graduated from religion. I guess he's sort of living John Lennon's imagined song in his life. Cliff says that we no longer need to be judged by religion because we can be judged by truth and facts, and the audience claps. We all probably know people who would clap at that response, and maybe you yourself might find yourself saying, yeah, Jimmy. But this is not the hope that we think it is. In fact, this is what Jesus would call a burden. 
It is righteousness that is required by us to prove our worth. Stay in the truth, stay in the facts, seems to be what Jimmy is telling us. And if there's one thing I am certain of in observing human beings is we are incapable of staying in truth and facts. Asking us to be judged by our own merits is not the good news. And yet we often think that that is how God works. That God judges us by our outcomes rather than by God's grace. You see, God's judgment and God's mercy are not in competition with one another. We Christians often think God has to choose between being graceful or being judgmental. There are, two, there are some overriding images in the Bible of, of God. One is, is that God is light and that God is love. When we think about light and we think about God's light shining into the world, we should think about how light brings light to the places that we want to keep dark. Right? I think if we're all willing to admit there's a little bit of part of us that we would never want to reveal to another person, and gosh, we hope that God doesn't really know that about us. But the purpose of God's light is not to bring shame, but to bring healing in the places that we want to keep in the dark. Isaac, the Syrian writing of the 4th century, says that those who are punished in hell are scourged by the scourge of love. For what is so bitter and venomous as the punishment of love? Right, so what he says is, is it's not God comes and punishes us for our wrongdoings, but God loves us, and some of us may experience that love and go, I don't deserve it. Or I don't like that. Christ's judgment, light, love is not about separating the good people from the bad people. God does not have a divine um, eggonator. Have you ever seen Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory? Right? There's this machine that Veruca Salt sits on that separates the good eggs from the bad eggs. And, and, and she falls through and Willy Wonka says she was a bad egg. Jesus is not like that. None of us are entirely good. None of us are entirely bad. All of us contain variations Ben Myers, in reflecting on this idea of God's judgment, says that our lives are not as transparent to ourselves as we think they are. So it should be comforting to us that somebody else who knows us at our very best and loves us despite our very worst is the one who is going to bring judgment. This is the good news of the gospel. That someone who understands the complexity of human life, more specifically, our human life is the one that we look to for judgment and redemption. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, says that the divine judgment does not primarily mean bringing punishment upon sinners. It operates, he says, only by separating from good, from evil, and pulling the soul toward communion and blessedness. So you might think about it as taking off the little parts of us that are not the part that we really want and taking the rest of it 
and placing it in God's very presence. Jesus turns to this time of waiting and warns us not to get caught up in this worry, right? This is what the whole um, uh, reading that we heard from Luke a little bit ago. Jesus is warning his disciples that there's going to come a time when all of these things happen. He says, but here, don't get caught up in worrying and waiting. Do not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. Man, if there's ever been a verse that we might want to put on a needlepoint, it is this. Do not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. So often in our culture, we talk about the importance of self-care. And taking care of yourself is a good thing. Self-care can soothe, but it can also be too individualistic to help with our loneliness. There is something that psychologists have noted is that in our times of trying to kind of get away and take care of ourselves, that too many of us are going into places of loneliness rather than places of connection. Me time is a great, it is truly a great thing for human flourishing. I am an introvert. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go to my room at my house. I'm going to sit in bed. I'm going to watch football and not talk to anybody for the rest of the day. (laughs) But the reality is for human flourishing, we need each other. That in the times in which we are tied up with dissipation and worry, do we really take care of ourselves? This question is not anything new. The great poet Alden wrote about the realities of life and not being weighed down by worry. It is entitled September 1st, 1939. It's the day that Germany invades Poland. And part of the poem goes like this. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights never go out. The music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. Alden is asking this very question about what is it that we do when we are most afraid of life. And he says that sometimes what we do is we consume other things to deaden the pain. To not be willing to say things are not all right. To go to those individualistic self-care places that harm rather than help us. Karl Barth may have been very right when he said, what other time or season can there ever be for the church other than Advent? That Advent is the space between the now and the not yet, the time when reality is not escaped, but embraced in all of its darkness. It's a season of self-examination, preparation, and confession. In this season, we hear the cries of John the Baptist calling us to repentance. Advent is a judgment on our endless motions without stillness. A law that reminds us of how much we in this world need a Savior that we eagerly await for. 
And the question is, is whether we as the church are willing to be in those places where people are hungering for deliverance. To sit with those who are worrying and are weighed down. Advent is certainly a time for hope and joy, love and peace. I'm not the Advent police here telling you to take down your Christmas trees and sit in sackcloth and ashes for the next several days. But it is to recognize that things are broken in this world. The world, our neighbors, our friends, ourselves cannot ignore the fact that there is brokenness and hopelessness as part of human existence. And the church and all of its calls for righteousness and justice should never forget that. But there's hope. There's hope in this myth of questions. As we are greeted at the end of Advent with a simple reminder from, God's, from John's gospel about God coming to us in Jesus. And John tells us the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness had not taken hold of it. Amen.